Welcome to the Lindsay Hadley Podcast Show. I'm coming to you from the North Shore of Oahu, where weekly I interview some of the world's most inspiring people from business, philanthropy, and entertainment. I love collecting humans, and these are some of my favorites I've found along the way. This podcast is brought to us by Capita Financial Network. Do you need help with the next steps of your financial plan? Think Capita. Capita is a financial network built around you. They have a team of financial advisors, CPAs, state attorneys, Medicare providers, and social security experts to help you accomplish your financial goals. Call or schedule a complimentary consultation at 801-566-5058 or visit their website at capitafinancialnetwork.com. You can also check out their financial education podcast, The Financial Call, available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and YouTube. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us on the Lindsay Hadley podcast show. Today, I have a friend of mine that I deeply admire, Matt Polson, on as our guest. Matt has an incredible entrepreneurial story. Um, in fact, in 2020, I believe it was Fast Company that shared uh, that his company, Omaze, is one of the most innovative companies in the world. And I really agree from somebody working in the nonprofit sector in philanthropy, like it's been incredible and stunning to watch Matt's team develop and build what they have raising over $200 million for over 300 nonprofits and growing. Um, basically, they put on campaigns and they've uh, democratized kind of these uh, high-end auction things that they have that you would normally see at a charity event, like dinner with uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck or special meet and greets with people like George Clooney and experiences, even giving away multi-million dollar homes. I mean, they've just got this incredible business model, which we're going to have them talk a little bit about. Um, he has an impressive background working at Stanford, and he has been a friend of mine. We worked together on a project at the Vatican, and I got to see Matt in his element. He's just a gift to every group and every project. Um, and today we're going to talk a little bit about also his near-death experience, which I'm like riveted about because I love this kind of stuff because it's so fun to to just to get into the, the mysticism of the, of the um, you know, the the world that we live in and what what happens, why we're here and what's coming next. And so Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so grateful you made time for us. Thanks for having me, Lindsay. It's good to see you. You too, buddy. So you're living in London right now. Thanks for doing this late, your time. And I can see your beautiful Christmas tree. We're in the holiday season, which is so exciting. So Matt, let's start off with going through your story. I'd love, I'm sure you've told the story a gazillion times, but I'd love for you to share a little bit, whatever you'd like to about what you know, led you into being an entrepreneur and choosing to start Omaze, which was just the first of its kind and has been a total disruptor in the charity world. I'm so excited for you to share about it. And I've had the joy of being able to run some campaigns with you, which has been so fun. And your team's yeah. impeccable. So excited for you to talk about that. Absolutely. Um, you know, my entrepreneurial journey started actually as a filmmaker. Um, I was really passionate about doing cause content using storytelling to inspire action and did a bunch of different projects along those lines uh was first one of the first directors on this thing called live earth which was the biggest concert ever thrown if you remember that it was on seven continents and one night totally and we had a bunch of you know music superstars all over the world um did a documentary series called girl rising about girls education in the developing world that was funded by oprah queen ronnie of jordan and Meryl streep was the narrator um anyway just did a bunch of projects like that um big concerts and documentaries and with you know really influential people who authentically wanted to do good 
And we just realized that we weren't doing that much good. We were creating a lot of awareness around these projects. We were creating a lot of impact. And it was kind of endemic to the space. So decided to go to business school, try to surround ourselves with people smarter than us, learn new ways of thinking. Um, and then when I was in school, I went to this event that Magic Johnson, the basketball player, was hosting where he was auctioning off the chance to play basketball with him and go to a Lakers game. But it was one of those things that was only available to the high net worth individuals sitting in the room. And we were in the room, but not high net worth individuals, you know, like <laughs> get invited last minute to fill the table. Um, so we watched as the auction went up to $15,000. Magic was our childhood hero. There's nothing we'd rather do than play basketball with Magic, but we couldn't afford to participate. And so when we were driving home that night, we said, that doesn't make any sense. You know, Magic, his fans around the world, not just in that room. And, you know, at that time, celebrities weren't really on social media, but we said they're going to be on social media and they're going to be able to reach their fans in a whole new way. So if we made it so anybody could donate $10 for the chance to win, you could raise so much more money, so much more awareness over a whole new donor base. So that's how the journey started. That's amazing. And so your, your, tell us about your first campaign you did. <laughs> Our first campaign was not a success. Our first campaign was to be a guest judge on the show Cupcake Wars. <laughs> raised $780. For well, something painful. Yeah. And, and was your tech, um, was it a significant investment to first launch the platform? Like, did you get an angel investment? Did you code it yourself? What did you do to actually test that first MVP? We did get angel investment. Um, and we, neither my co-founder and I were technical co-founders. So we brought on a firm to help us build the original site. Um, and then we hired a developer shortly thereafter uh, to just kind of, you know, and then, but most of that money was really towards um, just surviving as we were figuring it out the first year. That's amazing. So your first one wasn't a success. When was your first success? I and mean, how long did you have campaigns before and they were like, you know, technically not a success till you were like, this, okay, we have something, we we were right. Took us a while. Um, you know, we were, our first success, we launched in July of 2012. Yeah. Our first success didn't happen until really September of 2013. Wow. We were almost out of money at that point. We, wow. were, we, had, you know, we had about a month of cash left. And uh, I know it's wild to even think back at that time. Um, and we, we, but we had done a campaign. We had, we had talked to Brian Cranston from Breaking Bad and Aaron Paul from Breaking Bad about doing a campaign. It was right as the finale of Breaking Bad was hap happening. Wow. Uh, and they agreed to do this amazing campaign where you got to ride. People have seen the show. The, the premise is these two guys are essentially meth dealers and they have a Winnebago that they that they cook in and you know it's one of the most popular shows in the world I history but in, yeah history <laughs> anyway so that you got to ride you got to there was a lot of interest in the final episode you got to ride with them in a Winnebago you got to put on hazmat suits you got to cook eggs wow. with them which was a big thing on the show and then you got to watch the very last episode of Breaking Bad before anyone else in the world cool and, uh, yeah, it was put. You know, it was supposed to raise like forty thousand. That's what it had done in auction, and it, with us, it raised one point seven million. And that oh, on the map. 
So that was 13 months after you launched your first one with the cupcake wars. And then here you have this demonstrative success. You're like, okay, we figured it out. What was it that made that successful? And how many campaigns did you do leading up to that before that that weren't really that financially viable? That was successful, one, because Brian and Aaron are incredible people and they cared passionately about their causes, um, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and a Kind Campaign, which was Aaron wife, Aaron's wife, Lauren, who's also an amazing person, uh, her charity. Um, and so they were really passionate and therefore they were willing to go above and beyond to spread the word. And so Good. we did a lot of creative stuff that we hadn't done before. We did funny videos. We did Reddit AMAs. We used social for the first time. Aaron had a like pretty early adopter on Twitter or at least what you call Twitter. Um, and, and those really, that really drove it. Then we used scarcity, um, like as it was leading up to the final episode, we just like kind of harnessed the momentum of the, of the breaking bad interest and it just did really well um cool. so that was that was a big part of it um and how many have we done before that a lot i mean we had had a lot of failures probably we probably done 40 or 50 that had not oh, wow yeah oh my gosh yeah it was it was hard going for sure yeah. i love hearing this because from the outside I met you in 2017, but I'd seen Omaze starting like 2000 and like, I feel like 14. So after you guys had actually cracked your code and um, you're just this demonstrative success and it's just like, these guys came out of nowhere and they're just, you know, this is so smart. And of course, but it's really cool to hear that you kept going. What was it that made you like, I, we have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to the podcast. Like, what was it that made you keep going? Because I know for me, as a serial entrepreneur, I've tried different things. You know, I'm like, yeah, that many 50 slogs at that, I would have been like, all right, this isn't working, abort mission. You know, and the fact that you were almost out of money, was it the the um, passion, the vision? Was it the fact that you had investor money to return? You're like, I gotta keep going. Like, what was it that kept you keep going at that? That's and just slugging through all that failure and pain. Yeah, I think. I really do think that we we believe deeply in this idea. We believed deeply that this thing could have a massive impact on the world. We thought there was a magic in it and that it then the world it would be good for the world if it existed. So it was really like, you know, I think the ultimate fuel for persistence is if you feel like you're serving others and it doesn't have to be that you're doing a social impact company like we mm. are it could be you're serving your family you could be you know you're serving what whatever you know your team or whatever it is but but when you're doing something that's not just about yourself you feel like it's bigger okay. than just you it gives you a lot of fuel and so i think Please. that really drove us um you know there's also fear of failure it also drove us but it was yeah. it was really bad it's gotten Man. us a lot of ups and downs. It's so incredible. And you've been able to meet such inspired people, the world's kings and queens of culture, I would say, um, been a part of um, transforming people's lives. 
this is kind of a question that I've had a couple of times watching it. There's a lot of research that talks about winning a lottery. Now, these experiences, those are just like one-offs, but you guys are doing sometimes some major, like giving someone a multi-million dollar home, or even you've done like the cash prizes, like lottery-esque in their nature. And um, I'm curious about the impact. I mean, you, have you followed long-term what happens there? Because, you know, they talk about like, I can't remember the statistics, but I think it's above 70% of people that win the lottery, they're like bankrupt within the first five years or something atrocious. I'm, I'm actually pulling that out of the ether, but it's something like that, where it's just like this, where it's like, man, actually it was like really unhelpful for them to have this giant windfall. And I know that's like maybe a tough, hard question, but I'm just wondering if you've, I mean, I always light up when I see these videos of people getting on, you guys do your content on social of you delivering the keys to someone and giving them the news. And I'm just like, so much. Yes, I'm a full body. Yes. So I'm not a skeptic, but I'm just curious if you have seen people wrestle with that or you've ever had any thoughts about that or if you guys have come across that at all. Yeah. Um, you know, the stories you hear about people having won the lottery, um, being, and then getting in a tough financial position. Um, I, I think one, I think those stories are like a little bit less accurate than they're, than they're made out to be when you look at the data, but, but they do happen. And I think okay. that they do happen um, differently for someone who wins a massive cash prize than someone who wins a house or a car or certainly like a you know celebrity experience. Yeah. Um, the but the most relevant would be the houses, which is what we do now. Um, yeah, and you know, say someone's going to win the whatever the Powerball, they're talking a hundred million dollars. They end up getting every person they've ever met from anywhere in their life kind of comes out of the woodwork and asks them yeah. for things. And um, they have this like liquidity that they can immediately start spending against that maybe mm. they did not have proper, you know, guidance or Skills. training on how to use that. That's not really yeah. the case when you win a house. You know, it's an illiquid asset. Um, obviously, people sell the house sometimes and will have some cash, but it's not the kind of cash where you know, everybody in their family's coming to ask them for money because they didn't want a hundred million dollars. And so, yes. you know, we're only two years into the house journey, but every, we've, we've helped guide our winners. Um, we've kept in touch very closely with our winners and we haven't seen anything like that happen. Um, cool. a lot of them have been really wise in terms of, well, so a lot of them live in the house, first of all, wow. or they're wow. renting out the house and using it as a, you know, cash flow generating asset. Uh, cool. So yeah, we have we haven't seen that yet, but we're we're on the lookout for it. That's really cool. That's really um, and that makes perfect sense because a house isn't just like where you can you no longer ever have to be have obligations to the world or you know make an income or whatever. It's not. It's that's be a huge lever in someone's life, but it's it's not the same thing. So that's helpful. Um, how cool is that? So. Tell me a little bit about wh what's next for Amaze. You guys have accomplished so much, you know, a couple hundred million dollars for charities. Where do you see the future of going? Just keep rinse and repeat, keep doing what you've been doing. I have new innovations and ideas and helps for the platform and the company. Yeah, well, we've we've actually evolved a lot since you and I caught up. So we we no longer do the celebrity experiences or even cars. We just do houses now. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, I we're only doing that. it in the UK. Currently. I've been seeing them. I yeah. assumed it was just yeah. one of the things we did. Yeah, okay. yeah. And it's a subscription now, so there's a new house every single month, 
So we focused on the UK so we could provide customers a new house every single month. It's a subscription. There's a new charity with each house that goes on. And so those charities are netting a significant amount of money each time. Um, you know, doing really tangible projects with it. We're starting to do things like we're going to do things with Great Ormond Street Hospital here in London, where we're going to be one of the top funders on their pediatric cancer unit. So it's a five-year commitment. We'll be doing, you know, five houses for them. We're raising them a significant amount of money. So we're like doing tangible projects. We're actually building stuff, uh, building schools, playgrounds, like things like that. So that's really exciting. Um, and then creating more and more content around the winners, around the impact, like so creating media on top of this kind of economic engine that we've built that's really, work, that works really well with subscription. And then the vision is to repeat that, replicate that around the world. So we're looking at new markets next year. So we'll be launching beyond the UK and to many other countries in Western Europe. Um, cool. You know, we want to do it around the world. What made you pivot out of the celebrity experience and into the this home model? It's just much more impactful. Um, you know, really? the celebrity experiences were great, but you never really controlled your own destiny um, because you relaxed the schedule. And you know, we had we had we had gotten enough customers with doing the talent model where we could then felt like we could afford to buy houses. Which oh, we couldn't cool. do at the beginning, right? Because we didn't have any customers in our database. And so once we got to enough, we said, okay, we'll start doing things we control. We started with vacations and then we started doing watches and then sneakers, cars, and then ultimately houses. And then it just cool. took off at such an astonishing rate. Um, wow. We, we've grown incredibly fast with the house model, um, which we thought would happen. We, I mean, we didn't think it would happen this fast, but we thought, you know, it's very fundamental, like a house is very emotional for people. It's it's kind of all of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, safety, it's security, yeah. it's status, yeah. it's relationships. And, you know, whereas winning a celebrity experience changes, you know, maybe your Instagram profile, like winning <laughs> a car changes your lifestyle, like winning a house changes your life. Bragging rights, bragging rights at a dinner yeah, table. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? And those were fun. Those were, we love doing those. But this is just, you know, so the amount of impact we can create per time is like, significantly significantly higher than cool. what we're doing tout so that's why we're that's where we're focused that resonates with me have you ever done um partnerships with builders like contractors where they want people to they want the marketing for the kind of home they build because you do these gorgeous um marketing pieces that showcase the caliber of the design and the home and the opportunity and i, I could see builders or uh developers or construction you know outfits that are like have a product so to speak that they want to showcase do you ever partner with them and then they give like a huge discount or do it in kind for the marketing value because of your reach it's a good idea we haven't done that yet um, but we want to do it in the future cool talk to me when you want to because i have a couple friends that i think i think would really love to do that with you they're they're u.s based so but it would be cool um but I, i could really see that yeah i think that could be really cool when is, are you thinking about bringing this to the U.S. sometime soon? Um, definitely bringing it back to the U.S. We don't know when exactly. We're, we're going to start with some other markets that are a little bit more similar to the U.K. in size first, cool. and then ultimately come back to the U.S. 
How freaking awesome. And then is Omaze a 501c3 as it's, or is it's a for-profit, just the benefits for profit. of these? Okay, cool. Fabulous. That's so exciting. How big is the company now? Like what's its size and valuation and anything you can share? Like, and, you know, are you looking for onsets of a follow-on investment? Or is there ways people can be involved um, in the uh, world? We... We can't share the valuation, but it's it's grown a lot. It's really exciting for us. Cool. Um, we are not looking for investment. We're in a good, we're in a good place there. Uh, cool. And you know we're a pretty lean company from a headcount perspective. We are, we're only thirty people full time. Um, which if wow. you look at our sales per headcount, it's you know our investors say that's the highest they've ever seen. Uh, and. But so yeah, like it's it's just it speaks to the efficiency of the model. We when we were doing celebrities and cars and everything, we had almost two hundred people. Um, but when we focused on so, houses, it was just um, the time again. The time required to do it is very uh, is yeah much less significant. How neat that you built your audience though, following what your passion took, and then that led you into this new pivot that you probably could never imagined if you'd started right. Um, that's so fun about the entrepreneur, um, journey is that like, you know, you just put one step in front of the other with your passion and your grit, and then it leads you into vistas and, you know, valleys and peaks and all the things you never imagined. It is truly a real journey. Do you have any advice for our listeners about the entrepreneurial journey? And if they're in that, anything you want to share that you've gained insight about that you feel is really like, you know, deeply like capital T truth that that's in your bones now. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, yeah, there's so much. I I, I knew so little when I started this journey, um, which I think is some advice that no one knows what they're doing. And so if you feel, if you're concerned, you don't, or you have insecurities around that, or you look around and hear stories about everyone else and think, oh, they must be smarter than me. They're not. You know, people <laughs> look at us now as like that and trust me like I was scared to death and thought I knew nothing and I didn't know nothing <laughs> and so I think that's you know the, the I guess the advice in that is be a best friend to yourself forgive yourself um, you know I, I spent so much at the beginning of my journey criticizing myself because I thought I didn't know what others knew or I was you know was as smart as others or you name it and we can be really mean to ourselves and entrepreneurship's really lonely so you got to be a best friend to yourself. So I would definitely be a best friend to yourself. I think that's one. Um, two is, you know, when you don't know what to do, do nothing. And what I mean by that is entrepreneurs feel this sense of you need to constantly be progressing. If you're not constantly moving forward, then you might as well be dying. Um, and, you know, that kind of tenacity and work ethic is obviously very valuable a lot of the time. But sometimes when you face really difficult questions for us, it was, you know, going from doing celebrities to cars and trips and ultimately houses, choosing to, you know, shut down the U.S. market to focus on the U.K. and on this house model. Those are really hard decisions. And the answers don't come to you by just like working harder. You have to step back and kind of do nothing and like get still and get to your own voice. Cause you'll get, you'll get a lot of people giving you their opinions. And oftentimes there's a lot of pe 
people that are more experienced with you know stronger track records than you but ultimately you got to rely on yourself and so when you don't know what to do in those situations doing nothing stepping back clearing the noise getting still is really powerful amazing advice very um it's just like a those are great advices about being human i was thinking i've been a i've been a mom you know that's good advice about being a mom that it's lonely and being kind to ourselves not being critical you know and the idea that when you don't know what to do do nothing like just the way the surrender you know what i mean and the tension between you know tenacity and putting your fingers on it controlling things and like letting it letting it eventualize what it's supposed to be trusting god or whatever that higher power is you know i mean that's a great advice just in general as a human being which is a good segue into what i want to ask you about next and i'm, I'm mindful of the time but um I'd love, 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 and I haven't been able to, I saw what you posted on social media about your near-death experience. Can you share with our audience what happened to you and anything you can share? I'm just like riveted about these kinds of things. I think because they're of my own faith and my own hope about the afterlife, you know, and everything. I'm just so excited to hear your experience. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so grateful that you're still here doing what you're doing, blessing lives and growing as a person and connecting with me today. So I'd love to hear anything you want to share there. Well, thank you for saying that. I'm, I'm grateful to be here too with you. Yeah, what happened was um, I basically, I flatlined for four and a half minutes. You know, they basically almost cleared me dead. And what, what, what had happened was I was born with my stomach twisted and a knot. I was supposed to die when I was born. Wow. And the scar tissue from the surgery they did then broke off kind of freakishly all these years later. It created a bowel obstruction. They didn't know it at the time. And so I went to the hospital and just knew my stomach really hurted. And, um, and they did all these tests and they couldn't figure out what it was. And our COO, Helen, had been at the hospital. My parents been at the hospital and they sent them home and said, hey, you guys, you guys go home tonight and we'll keep Matt overnight. And if he's not better in the morning, then we'll do surgery then. And Helen drove home to our house, pulled into her driveway and it was you know, almost midnight at this point, she'd been at the hospital all day. So she was exhausted and she, she, she was going to get out of her car and something told her to go back to the hospital. Wow. And Helen is, she's a COO. She's British. She's very serious. She's not like a listen <laughs> to the cosmos type person, <laughs> um, but the voice was undeniable. So she drove back and if she hadn't driven back, I would have died like 45 minutes later. Wow. Because the, uh, Machines had not alerted the nurse, and and so she went and got the nurse. Um, or right, you, you, sorry, when the, you were flatlining, she was there to go tell someone. That's what you're saying. I wasn't flatlining yet. My sorry, my heart rate had plummeted at this. Point. Oh wow! Okay, and she had come in to discover that, and because she knew how to read the machines, because she had been in the hospital with her grandmother wow. for weeks. Wow! So she saw that my blood pressure was incredibly dangerously low. Wow! And so she went and got the nurse. The nurse. Like, this can't be right. She went and got the doctor. The doctor took one look, pulled me. They, they called in the crash team, rushed me into surgery, came out of surgery. And then they said to my mom, you know, the good news is we figured out what it is. It's about obstruction. The bad news is that his heart rate's continuing to plummet. Eh. We don't know why. And he's in critical condition. Oh, how scary. Yeah. And then a couple hours passed, my mom went downstairs to get my dad and my brother. And she came up the elevator and she heard over the loudspeaker code blue 
in room 437. My mom works, or I worked in a hospital, and so she knows that that means flatline. And she knows that that's my room. And she got out of the elevator. She rushed down the hall. She got to the door and the nurse said, I'm sorry, you know, you can't come in. This is really serious. And she said, look, I was there when he came in this world. If he's leaving this world right now, I'm going to be in that room. So she let her, she let her in the room and they were doing the flat line or they were doing the, um, they were doing the defibrillator, like the paddles that you see on TV and they were doing the CPR compression and I wasn't responding. Uh, I was flatlined and my mom started to crumble. You know, it's one thing to lose a child. It's nothing to be there when it's happening. And yes. And you know, my, my dad was outside with my brother and this, and this doctor said to another doctor in front of my brother, not knowing it was my brother that we, we think we lost this guy. We think he's gone. And so my brother pushed my dad in the room and said, you got to be there with mom. So my dad kind of, you know, if you look at the scheme, my dad, my mom's face kind of to the you know, right, my right of the computer. And my, my dad came in from the left and my dad was crying so loudly that my mom turned away from me to him to say like, Gary, you got to be quiet or they're going to take us out of this room. <laughs> and, and when she turned to say that to him. She said she saw something she'd never seen before in a hospital. She said every nurse oh. and every staff member and every doctor in the ICU had just gravitated outside the window. And there was wow. 40 of them. And it looked like this silent what? church choir just like sending in this positive energy. And she was so moved wow. by these people that were sending in love to someone that she didn't, that they didn't even know. Um, and it was like a spiritual transformation for her. Um, it just filled her up with strength and she took a deep breath and she started coaching me and she was like, Matthew David Poulsen, these people are fighting to save your life. You know, they're fighting so hard to bring you back, but you are not fighting hard enough. You need to fight harder. Matthew David Poulsen, you need to fight to come back to us. You know, and they said it was really surreal experience because here's this 65 year old mom that's not supposed to be in that room. And we've all seen Grey's Anatomy. There's moms in the in the operating rooms. Nope. Um, and the flat line went on for four and a half minutes. But yeah, and, and oftentimes they don't fight that long. But because she kept fighting, they kept fighting. And then, but at one point, wow, yeah, yeah. And at one point, it's also crazy when I tell the story. I just like can't believe this actually happened but um at one point she started to think like god this has gone on too long and i I can't believe i'm gonna lose my son you know and if i lose my son i'm probably gonna lose my husband and right as her mind was there the main doctor shook his head as if to say like this is not oh no yeah and he turned away my mom grabbed his arm and said please please don't call it and Right as she said that, he turned kind of back to the machine and said, wait a second, I think we have a pulse. And then they just watched as the machine kind of ticked along. And then all of a sudden, kind of out of nowhere, my eyes opened up. And I just kind of popped Oh, up. wow. And 
kind of like slowly lifted my right arm and gave a thumbs up. Oh my goodness. That's remarkable. Do you, were you, did you have any consciousness during any of this? Do you remember anything? Did you experience something for yourself? Like when you were flatlined, what can you share with us? Yeah, I, I do have a, a memory. Basically what I remember was it wasn't like you read about on, or you hear about on television where they're like, you know, there's this tunnel of light and you walk towards the light that was not my experience um not to say it's not others uh but what i experienced was was basically the every time i tell this i feel like i do such an inadequate job of trying to explain it but i'll do my i'll do my best um which is it the, the best way i can describe it it was it was like i was in this like kind of it's like if you're deep underwater you know, if you're watching a submarine movie mm-hmm. and they kind of like, they look up at the surface of the ocean, you know, and you can see just a little bit of mm-hmm. light coming through. It's dark, but you can see a little light coming through. It was like that. And the water was like this cosmic energy water, you know, where like a lot of traditions say when your ego dissolves, mm-hmm. time dissolves, and you feel like both a uh, drop in the ocean and the entire ocean. You know, you're both everything at the mm-hmm. same time. Um, Nothing. That's what it felt like. And it was amazing. Wow. Like, to me, that's love. Like it was it was everything you want. Love or God, whatever you want to, whatever it is to you, um, that's what it felt like. And then I could hear from the light, I could hear my mom saying, Matthew, you, wow. you need to fight. You need to fight to come back. And I remember thinking, like I remember having a choice. I remember thinking... Mm-hmm. Do I go back there or do I stay? And again, this, wow. this day like was amazing. It was amazing. Um, but ultimately, I, I, really, I think I'm just still scared of my mom. So I was like, I should go back. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I don't think I have much more relation than that. You know? and, but then I remember like, That's amazing. Yeah, I remember having um like a conscious a conscious thought of like okay this is really hard to get back there and and, and but, but people knew my friends knew like this was going on so they were sending me love and i uh yeah. and i could feel that I, I could feel it i could see it i could see that energy and it was it was supporting me and i remember it felt like an endless journey, but that wow. was helping me get there. And if you know, it felt like it took four years to get back up there, not four minutes. Um, and then, wow. And then I remember kind of finally getting closer and kind of accelerating, going like through the light, like kind of back, like into the world, and then coming into the room. And I remember very clearly, I can picture right now of this, I just seeing this wall of faces, which was like the doctors and the nurses through, through the window, like just looking at me. Oh, and with their mouths like open because apparently they hadn't you set up. <laughs> yeah, because I sat up, but apparently they don't. That doesn't, or they'd never seen that happen before. Um, so I remember seeing them, and then I remember looking over and seeing my mom, and then seeing my dad, and that's when I like gave the I lifted my right arm and gave the thumbs up, and then I lifted my left arm and gave another thumb. Oh. 
Wow, Matt. What a beautiful story. And I mean, what I'm hearing from you, which is the hope I have is that, and the deep belief I have is that there is, there is consciousness or life or existence after this life, that it doesn't end with death and our brains and heart stopping. And like that, you know, the hope is that, that, that is love, right? That, that we come from love, that we are love, that we're going back to love, right? And does that give you certain peace or um, you think about death being imminent in the future or how does that impact your life now as you operate or how did that change you in any way, that whole experience? It made me believe a lot of things I didn't believe before that. Um, I would have been like pretty dismissive of someone telling a story about their, if I heard the same story I just heard, I would have probably not have believed people. And now I obviously do. Um, I, I just really believe in the power of love at a level that I didn't contemplate. Like I believe, I believe optimism and love are superpowers and, and they change the course of things. Um, and the consciousness does extend beyond just our own brains. I think that's starting to become pretty like widely accepted. Um, even like scientific communities. I, but you know, I, I think you can change the course of actions with love, and I think you can you can tap into this this level of like kind of the fundamental substrate where all energy is together. Um, I think it's available to all of us, and therefore. There's a lot you can do to heal and change the course of events. How beautiful is that? So have you have you have you now found yourself tapping into that metaphysical reality more in your day to day? Do you bring that supernatural into the natural in your life? You know, do you find you trusting intuition and love and energy and connection and all of that deeper? It sounds like sounds like you now believe that but is it actually you know do you feel it like realized in your life in a demonstrative way i do i mean i'm not always able to do it sometimes i fall prey to all the things that we fall prey to as humans but i i'm very clear now that the opposite of love is not hate it's fear so i, I think every choice in life is a choice between love and fear and so I work really hard to choose love and operate from a place of love and to wow. share love and to tell people that I love them. Um, and, yeah. you know, I've learned techniques to when I do go to those places of fear or your amygdala spikes or your cortisol spike or whatever it is that, you know, you can, you can work through that. You can breathe through that. You don't need to go through a new death experience to experience all this. It's like right there with our breath has been forever wow. and traditions have been using yeah. that forever. And so it's those same experiences are available totally naturally. How cool is that? Well, this is a beautiful way to end it. You know, one of the things that I um, constantly find myself learning and I'm, I love when you said choosing love because having my own struggles with like codependency or fawning is like a way to get love. I I'll, I have given love a lot to get love. I do things for love 
instead of from love. Mm. And I'm learning the difference Ouch. to really find that it can be counterfeit. You know what yeah. I mean? And so things that I thought were kind or nice or placating or pleasing to like, because I love somebody actually was driven by fear in many instances to get love from them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, afraid they would abandon me, afraid they wouldn't love me. And so the learning, the beauty of like surrendering into that, like I am love, there's nothing to fear. And, and then I can make choices from love. It just, it's incredible. The difference, it surprises me every minute. And I'm, it's such a beautiful gift to have people and circumstances and things that, that help you navigate that and get in, more anchored in that choosing love. Um, expression. So I love what you're saying. Sure. And I'm so grateful. I love you, Matt. And I'm so grateful you came on the show. <laughs> Thank you so much again for coming on. And, um, you know, just we're looking forward to having a chance for those of us that are U.S. listeners um, for when you end up in our backyard. But if not, can people from the U.S. win a U.K. home? Can they still participate? They can't and just right have now. a vacation property? No, or? they can't. You have okay. to be in the U.K. But we'll okay. be back. We'll be back okay, to the cool. U.S. No okay. Problem. Can't wait for it. All right. Give me a call when you're ready. I love it, my friend. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Matt. Do you need help with the next steps for your financial plan? Think Capita. Capita is a financial network built around you. They have a team of financial advisors, CPAs, estate attorneys, Medicare providers, and social security experts to help you accomplish your financial goals. Call to schedule a complimentary consultation at 801 801- Five six six five zero five eight, or visit their website at www.capitafinancialnetwork.com. You can also check out their financial education podcast, The Financial Call, available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and YouTube.